Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Lisa C., whose latest novel is The Island of Sea Women. Earlier novels include The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, China Dolls, Counting this one, there are 11 books, 10 novels, and one memoir. This book, much like T-Girl, your previous book, takes us into an area and with people that most people have not heard of. So I want to go back one book for a second to T-Girl of Hummingbird Lane, which takes us to the, I think it's the Akha people of uh, northern Thailand and southern China a tribe there. So this book, Island of Sea Women, takes us to an island off Korea and an entirely different culture. So going back one book, was that the first time that you'd investigated and found an unusual culture? No, you know, when I wrote um, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, that's actually about the Yao ethnic minority in Henan province in China. And so China has 55 ethnic minorities. But in Yunnan, 26 of them are there, and one of them are the Akka. And so I was going to be writing about this very special tea, Pu'er tea. And so I was really looking at all 26 who are in Yunnan, trying to figure out which one would be the one that I would really most want to write about. And actually, when I went to China to do the research for that, I had already narrowed down to five, but not one of them were the Akka. And it wasn't until I was there and I started meeting Akka people and Akka families that I just shifted my focus to that group because they are so unique and they have such interesting traditions and and such an interesting kind of worldview. They're animistic. So many of their traditions are actually very similar to those of the Cree here. For the next one, for Island of Sea Women, Um, This, as you said, takes place on this island off the tip of South Korea. And while it's not an ethnic minority, it is a a society. It's a matrifocal society of these women free divers. And for hundreds of years, this has been, you know, the society, not a matriarchy, but a society focused on women. And they dive down about 60 feet on a single breath stay underwater two to three minutes to harvest seafood. And then their husbands are the ones who take care of the kids, who do the cooking, take care of the house, things like that. So after Tea Girl, were you looking for another interesting culture or or how did you discover the island Jeju? You Jeju? Know, it doesn't, Jeju, it doesn't work that way for me. I actually think about things for a lot of years before I write them. So with The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, I actually thought about that book for about 20 years before I figured out my way into the story, uh, which is really about 
adoption from China and the one-child policy, and I just needed my way in. And then with this one, it was about eight years, and I was sitting in a doctor's office. You know, now it's got to be about 11 years ago, and just, you know, how you're sitting there and you're flipping through magazines, and I came across this one tiny article, one paragraph, one photo about these diving women, and I tore it out of the magazine, and I, I knew I you know would write about them one day, but again, I, I sort of needed my way into the story, and, and so I think by taking such a long time before I decide this is the one, that means I'm kind of quietly collecting stuff, of course, but also really thinking about the story that I want to tell. And it's again, it's sort of about my way in. So what specifically was your way in that made you go, okay, this is the time to write about Jeju Island? Well, for Jeju, I really had this sense, I mean, you know, in the recent years, there were more and more articles and things that I was coming across that were saying that this culture was going to be gone in about 15 years. Uh, So it used to be that these women would retire at age 55. Now the youngest one is 55. And so, you know, the main divers now are in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And if you wait five years and someone's in their 90s now, you know, you might not have the chance to interview them. I did want to have the opportunity to interview people who really had lived through this, this sort of almost a century of life and history on that island, which was, you know, a very complex and and at times very dark history. And so for me, you know, to have those first person stories were, was just really important to me. So I, I didn't want to wait to, until those people in their 80s and 90s are gone. I just really did kind of feel this, you know, the time ticking by. And if I didn't do it now, I might not have the, the chance to interview the people that I'd really want to interview. So Lisa C., at a certain point, you're going, all right, time to go to the island. Okay, so you fly into Seoul? Just pass through. Just yeah, pass just, through, and then just, you take a plane to Jeju Island. Right. And had you looked at pictures, did you know what it looked like at that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, I'd already been quietly doing research for about eight years, and so I knew what it looked like. I'd seen lots of photos. I'd seen some documentaries. There's a wonderful documentary that was done black and white in 1957 about a little girl who's training to be a diver. And so, you know, I had already done so much research by the time that I got there. But nevertheless, (laughs) there are certain things that you can read about. Then when you're there, they have such a different impact. So, for example, this island, it it, it has this kind of catchphrase, the island of the three abundances. And the three abundances are women, wind, and stones. So women, of course, because it's a matrifocal society, but it is really, really windy. And so I'm not a great flyer. (laughs) And so you're coming in, you know, this bumpy, 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 bumpy flight and taking off that way. So you have this kind of different experience of the things that you've been doing research about. In looking at it on a map, it hadn't occurred to me that I mean, I was thinking as I started reading it, oh, a small island. But no, it's a very big island. It's a it's a really good-sized island. It's 40 times the size of Manhattan. And at the same time, it's something that 
most people have never heard of, and yet it's a major part of Korea, and I assume people in Korea all know about it. Oh, yes, they all know about it. And actually, even in Asia, just generally, people know about it because it is considered kind of the the Hawaii of Asia. It's a big honeymoon destination. They've got a big tourism industry now, so lots of golfing and things like that. What they dive for in the Island of Sea Women are abalone, octopus, some fish, but mostly just shellfish. Is there still a lot of abalone left there? These women do see themselves as the guardians of the sea, and so they're very careful about when they harvest and how they harvest. Each diving collective has different areas that, that they dive, some close to the shore, some maybe off the, you know, a particular cove off a smaller island or this area in the deep sea. And so they really treat these as fields. And so like a farmer will leave certain fields fallow. In their case, they won't harvest during spawning times. Uh, that they're very, very careful with how they harvest for the very reason that they can keep their fields alive, you know, and, and profitable. So you had some abalone there? Or? I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's very and hard to get in these days. Very, you know, when I was a little kid, I don't, I don't know if you grew up here in California, but that used to be the cheapest thing on the menu. And I just have these really vivid memories of being a little kid and going to a, you know, we didn't go out very much, but going out every once in a while and just begging, could I just have a hamburger? And my mom would be like, no, you have to have the abalone because it was the cheapest, cheapest thing. Of course, now you, we don't have it. This is an island. In the center of the island is a giant mountain, and it's a really, really big mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, the terrain is semi-tropical, jungle-ish? It has palm trees. You know, it's very rocky, and it's a volcanic island. So it's there's a lot of st- volcanic rock everywhere, and not a whole lot of fields. You know, land fields um, for growing vegetables and things like that. So it's it's quite rugged, but it does look a lot like Hawaii. The cuisine is seafood and sweet potatoes, pretty much? Well, certainly in the past, uh, sweet potatoes were one of the few things people could grow uh, for sustenance. And uh, they also grew those sweet potatoes to be made into liquor that they would sell. But they didn't really have the water or the conditions to grow things like rice. So they people were really living off of what came out of the sea and then uh, sweet potatoes. This society had its own religion, which included shamans, and you have a character named Shaman Kim who seems to live for 150 years. She does. (laughs) (laughs) She's very elderly at the end. The book itself, once you've got the location, okay, once you've got the people, once you've got the background, you know, the depth, which obviously through your research you can do, Then you've got to tell a story, Mm -hmm. and this is the story of two women and their relationship. A lot of your books are about the story of two women and their relationship. Have you given thought to why that is? If you take a step back and just think about sort of the larger canon of, of Western literature, that it's really only very recently that women have been writing about women. Men have been writing about women for a really long time. There's some women that you can 
kind of pop in there, um, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot. But it's really only the last 75 years that women really started writing in a big way about women. And so I actually feel that this is still a completely untouched, you know, relatively untouched area. I do write about these women's relationships I think I'm kind of looking at this dark shadow side of friendship or sisters or mothers and daughters that uh, that whenever I see those shadows, I just want to dive into them. And in this particular case, Meija and Young Suk, these two women, best friends as little girls, and then they live through some of the most horrific events over the next 50 years or so, their relationship goes through a couple of very, very key elements, which we won't go into except to say that Young Sook is not real happy mm-hmm. with with uh, her friend. Was that always there? For yeah. me, what I... What, As you were you know, actually, I started with this idea of kind of fate and destiny, something I've written about a lot, and that each of these girls in a way, has a like a stamp on her forehead as, as little kids of what their future looks like. So Young Suk is the daughter of the chief of the diving collective. So it's expected she's going to grow up to be, you know, the next chief. And, and Mei Cha is the daughter and now orphan of a Japanese collaborator. And so she also has this kind of stamp on her forehead, not so positive. And so I was sort of thinking about Again, this idea of fate and destiny, but also free choice and free will. And how much do we have it? You know, even though you might have that stamp, how much uh, latitude do you have to sort of change your future or not? As I was doing research about this island and some of the history that had happened there, the history itself, you could illuminate that history by seeing it through the eyes of these two friends and the choices that they make. And, you know, all of us, I think, you know, we're always, we're always making choices, right? And are you the kind of person who is going to be loyal or going to betray someone who's going to, you know, rise to the occasion or really go <laughs> the, the other direction? And I, again, I think those are themes that have appeared in my books before. Uh, but the you know here the circumstances are are a little different. There are flash forwards to 2008, and I guess you made it 2008 because after that, uh, our character is going to be a little bit too old. But those flash forwards were they written sequentially with the book, or did they come after or before? So first of all, the 2008 is also because that's the year that the Peace Park opened, and so the, those later scenes you know, happen with the opening of the Peace Park that is this commemoration of what's known as the 4-3 incident, the April 3rd incident. Which and this we'll, get, we'll to. get to. But that was really why I said it at that time, because it was such a, a critical uh, moment of of sort of acknowledging the past for the island, but also for these characters and for the, you know, real people who lived there. So I wrote that first scene first. I mean, I really did write the first scene. You know, I I had it in my mind. I think I did write them sequentially as they came along. 
I may have toyed with them a little bit moving back and forth because those, I think it's four days in 2008, I knew what I wanted to have happen in them, but they also had to fit into the story. I know that I tinkered with them an awful lot to make sure that I wasn't giving too much away and, you know, things like that. As you were doing your research, or maybe it was early on, the horrors of the April 3rd incident, and there's an earlier incident as well, you knew about them all along too. I hadn't known about them all along, but I probably knew, you know, maybe five years ago. So when I started, I was just thinking about the divers and how unique what they do is and how unique the society is. But then as I was quietly doing that research was when I came across um, the 4-3 incident. And just even more generally, the idea of this island as a stepping stone and how you know other countries had used it China to step on it to invade Japan, Japan to step on it to invade China, and then, of course, all around the Pacific um, on December 7th. So uh, once I started seeing its strategic importance in the history that had happened there and how we, we, meaning me, knew nothing about it. I mean, when I was a kid, I just went to public school here in California. Not only did we not learn very much about Asia, but by the time you got to the Korean War, it was always kind of like a one paragraph in the history book. It wasn't something that we learned very much about. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if just the historians got tired by that time or the teachers got tired, but we, I, at least I didn't learn very much. I suspect part of it is that as we were growing up, which was in the days of the Cold War, Korea was an ally, and what South Korea was doing to its people was pretty horrendous. Right. So we were not going to hear about the horrendous things exactly. that were happening in South Korea. Right. And I think it was also kind of tangled up with the Vietnam War. And even though Korean War had happened in the past, as we were in the Vietnam War, the sort of focus shifted, even though, again, you know, people were talking about the Cold War and the domino effect and all of that. What I noticed in this book, more than in your other books, is the political content. You can't talk about Korea and what happened from World War II up until fairly recent times without talking about politics and talking about the American role in politics. When we're talking about the April 3rd incident, we're talking about massacres. Mm -hmm. We're talking about genocide, essentially. And if the United States was not directly killing people. The United States was entirely complicit in the genocide. As you were doing your research, I assume this is one of the things you discovered. Right. Yes, absolutely. What happened has been part of a now 10-year human rights investigation. And so I had the report on that investigation, 755 pages. The people who did that investigation had access to U.S. military records and archives and interviewed U.S. military people who were stationed in Jeju at that time, had records, you know, all kinds of records that would really substantiate the, the United States government's and military's complicity in this incident. Although it has a date, you know, 4-3, it's actually 
on April 3rd, 1948, was the beginning of what became an eight-year massacre, during which it's 30 to 80,000 people were killed, and 80,000 people became refugees. 40,000 people fled to Japan, and 70% of all of the villages were destroyed. And to compound how difficult this was, you know, after eight years of death and tragedy, of loss of life, loss of property, the people had to keep it a secret for 50 years. You know, because it was a dictatorship, this was a really serious problem so that if you wrote about it, if you talked about it, if you were in your kitchen and you talked about what had happened and somebody was walking by, you could be arrested, sent to prison, killed, and so could your family. So this was a, you know, such a deep, deeply held secret, which is why we don't know about it. And so to me, one of the things that actually inspired me and, and why I have those, we'll call them present day, although that's 2008, why I have those present day scenes is because in the last 10 years, they've really sought to forgive each other. And today, this island is known as the island, internationally, the island of peace. And this idea of forgiveness, you know, in other books that I've written, people don't forgive each other very well. They have a hard time. And I think that's because people do have a hard time forgiving each other. Cultures have a hard time forgiving each other. Certainly countries have a hard time forgiving each other. And so what does that take? That takes one group of people to admit what they did, you know, to own what they did and to apologize, right? And then it takes this other group of people to forgive. And sometimes I think we look at forgiveness as kind of this larger act of self-sacrifice, like I'm forgiving, but it's for the greater good. It's not really personal. But what they have found here on this island and in other places like South Africa, Rwanda, is that if you can find a way to forgiveness, that what you're doing is you're kind of releasing yourself from the horrible moment, the terrible tragedy, the, that, you know, all the things that you witnessed or suffered. And in doing that, you're no longer a prisoner of the past. And so to me, in this book, to look at that idea of forgiveness between individual friends, Young Suk and Meja, but also what you know did happen in real life in these villages where sometimes half the village were perpetrators and half the villagers were victims. So you have it you know personally, then on a sort of smaller scale in these villages, but then in the larger scale for the whole island, and then you could even say the island and South Korea more generally. And then, of course, internationally, since the United States was complicit. And, of course, we never have acknowledged really what we did and, and how we behaved, although, you know, the United States did very much participate in this human rights report. As you were talking, and you sort of hinted at it as you were talking, I kept thinking, so Young Sook, in a way, is a metaphor. I think so, maybe. I mean, it's certainly personal to her. One of my favorite parts of the book is it's later in the story, and she knows she has to forgive, but she goes to all of these different people that she's known, 
She goes to uh, the shaman who, that, who lives forever, you know, and says, what do I do? And the shaman says, you know what you have to do. You know, you know what you have to do. And she goes to a friend who also suffered terrible losses. And what should I do? And that woman tells her what she has to do. But she can't, at that point in the 1960s, I guess it is, she still can't get there, even though she knows what she needs to do. And so I do think that this forgiveness is a process. And in a way, her character is speaking for many people there and entire villages there that suffered so much. In this book, The Island of Sea Women, what I noticed is that people respond to things that they know about, but we don't, but we will learn about. And this happens throughout, which means you had to carefully construct exactly what we knew and not give away what we don't know. How hard or easy was that? Hard, very hard. In that way, it is a little bit like a puzzle or a mystery where you're, you're putting in clues, but you can't give too many. What I hope is that those modern-day scenes, that they're giving some hints about what's coming, which is the past, and enough to make you want to turn the pages and find out why, but not so much that it gives it away. One of the difficulties is that you don't want to give any foreshadowing because the characters don't about what's going to happen Mm -hmm. in 1948. Right. Also, isn't that true in life? I mean, I, I often use or think of the example of Pearl Harbor. You know, when people woke up that morning, they didn't know that was going to happen. You just turned on the radio and you found out. 9-11 so you can't, too, yeah. 9-11 too. There, there are these moments where in hindsight you might see, oh, this is coming or some kind of thing is coming. But in the moment, you know, when you're living it, you're just going about your daily lives. And I think that's actually one of the hard things in writing a historical novel is, you know, maybe the reader knows that, you know, World War II is coming or uh, the bombing of Hiroshima is coming. But the people who are living it, they don't know it. Did you know exactly who was going to live and who was going to die before you actually got to that scene in the, of the massacre scene? I did because I did know that I wanted to write this novel of forgiveness and that it had to be something really difficult to forgive and that if the worst thing happens, then how do you forgive? It must have been a very hard scene to write, though. Yes, of course it was. And every once in a while... When we were editing, my editor would say, you know, why can't you just forgive already? And then I'd say, well, remember what happened back there and, you know, back there? And she'd say, oh, yeah, that's right. She can't possibly forgive. I think in fiction, we want people to be better than we are in real life. You know, we want them to forgive more easily or come to this good conclusion more easily than we do in real life. And so I I wanted this to be a struggle for her. But it also had to be uh, something that had happened that was so bad that readers would remember, oh, well, yeah, of course this isn't going to be easy for her to forgive. Plus, I just want to say that sometimes we take these numbers of 30, was it 30,000 or 80,000 people? Is it, you know, whatever the numbers are, um, you know, you could say 6 million Jews killed during the Holocaust. 
But there's a point where sometimes these numbers become kind of an abstraction. It's not like watching television where if you're watching Law & Order, somebody gets shot and Olivia Benson comes in and solves the crime. You know, life isn't like that. To kill people, it's really violent. And the results of it are devastating for everybody who's left behind. And so I just felt like I couldn't shy away from what actually happened. And I used the report. I interviewed people who had survived the massacre. One man in particular, uh, a poet, elderly man, who as a boy saw all of the males in his village over the age of 12 to the oldest grandfather killed in front of him. And this was something he was living with all the way to today. You know, very haunted man. Uh, Shamanism has this idea of soul loss, that if you've had some terrible experience, that your soul kind of leaves, you know, you're still alive, but your soul has kind of left your body. And that's one of the things that these shamans, particularly on this island, have helped to try to get people's souls back in their bodies. And if you've ever been with someone who's suffering terrible grief, who's lost a spouse or a child, you know that they're present, but there's a part of them that's not in the room, right? And so what what has to happen for that sense of soul loss? And I just didn't feel like you... I could just write, oh, a bunch of people were shot, period. And so I used the actual um, details of things that this man and other people told me about, but also the eyewitness accounts that were from survivors that were written about in in the big uh, report. Lisa C., getting back to the island of Jeju today, it's made mention that Almost all of the uh, houses, the traditional houses, are gone, replaced by, I guess, you know, stucco. So you can't see particularly well what it was like. Is that correct? It's not exactly correct. A lot of the houses have been replaced with sort of stucco boxes, but there are a lot of the original stone houses that have survived. However, they no longer have their thatch roofs, really a fire danger. And in the late 1970s, the government of of South Korea instituted what they called the New Village Movement, create more safety, but also hygiene and things like that for people across South Korea. What you'll see on this island is a lot of the old houses, the thatch is gone, but maybe they'll have a blue tin roof. Some people have put on a more kind of nicer uh, tile roof that sort of blends in a little bit better with the stone. There are people who have bought these um, old houses and turned them into restaurants and guest houses. I actually have a friend who's a writer who just wrote a book about buying one of these houses and restoring it to look like what it used to look like, minus the thatch. And the Matrifocal Society, is that pretty much gone now? It's really disappearing also in the late 1970s was the first time that girls could go to public school. They had private schools. Nobody could afford it. But even the public schools required fees. And so these women divers who were illiterate, they started saving their money so that they could send their daughters and then their granddaughters to school. And so those women have become 
doctors and engineers, and they work in tourism, and they work at the local bookstore and whatever else, you know, that they're doing. So this is why the there are very, very few younger women coming into the profession of diving. It really is going to disappear very, very shortly. Did you go swimming when you were there? I did not because while I'm a not bad swimmer, these are people who have trained for years and years and years. They have a hierarchy of different levels of divers. I just didn't feel that I was equipped to dive with them. Are the seas rough and cold? or The seas are pretty rough. Uh, it's definitely cold even in the summer. The waters are pretty cold. But it's more that they dive with wetsuits but with weights around their their hips to, because the wetsuits are so buoyant. They are underwater a long time. I certainly would not have felt comfortable going out on a boat and just jumping into the deep sea with them. But I did spend a lot of time on the shore. There, there are lots of groups, again, because they're older, that dive right off jetties or right off the shore. So you can be, you know, 10, 15 feet from where they're doing their work. How do you pronounce what they call themselves? Henyo. Henyo. Yeah. Sea women. And that's completely through the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of other Korean words or Jeju words in the book that are a little hard to pronounce as well. I'm trying to remember what they were. The volcano at the center of the island, yeah. while it's known as Mount Hala, the local name is Grandmother Solmonde, and she's sort of the, the embodiment of this island, the chief goddess of an island of 10,000 goddesses. So now if, we go, if you go there, um, I assume the robes are all paved and there are towns that kind of look a little like Lahaina, perhaps? Well, yes, the roads are all paved, but I don't think any towns, I guess, actually on the south side of the island, it is pretty touristy. You know, it's warmer there. It's not as windy there. That's where they grow this special um, citrus. It's a kind of a cross between a tangerine and an orange. It's very unique to this island. So it's, it's more temperate. And that's where they have all the golf courses and things like that. So, yes, that does. To me, when I was there, it kind of reminded me a little of like Newport Beach, a tourist beach town. But on the other side of of the island, the villages, like one of the villages I stayed in, Hado, which still has the most of the divers of any village. And that's where you set your... <laughs> that's where she, that's where Jung-suk lives, and it's also where the Henyo Museum is. Those are still mostly traditional houses, but with the new roof. And that's where I stayed in one of those traditional houses. Uh, when you walk away from writing a book like this, what changes inside Lisa C. from having written it? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I I am not a great person at forgiving. (laughs) To say mildly, if you ask my neighbor, you know, my neighbor and I have had been having a feud for about 20 years. So what I hope is that I can take sometimes some of those lessons that I'm writing about and apply them to my own life. Also, I think a little bit about friendship and the nature of friendship and and other kinds of relationships you have in your family. 
even if it's with a spouse. It's not just about forgiveness, but how you kind of live through these difficult moments and how those change you and you can't do they sometimes change you for the better but we all have them you know in our lives and we all suffer different kinds of losses certainly I have I actually think every book that I've written there's been some aspect where it's like a uh, maybe a healing thing or maybe a lesson to myself what I got out of the book it's that the more we learn about the country that we live in and what it's done around the world, the more depressing on the one hand and the less we see the United States as exceptional. Right. Well, that's certainly true. What happened in Jeju in 1948, now it may not have been American soldiers who committed the massacres, but but we provided the air surveillance. We provided tents for the you know, so-called refugees. To say that we didn't know what was going on is ludicrous. And in addition, the fact that the government, this terrible autocratic government, was our puppet. Yep. Oh, yeah. And yep. Yep. when you look at that, then suddenly humanitarian falls very, very far. Reminds me... Um, you know, Japan during World War II was vicious outside Japan, but inside Japan, they're the Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're this great society. And sometimes I think with the United States, we forget, well, now, of course, with children in cages and Trump, we can't forget because it's happening here. But the United States has never been particularly nice outside the United mm-hmm. States. And it's For me, it's just another nail in a coffin. And what I think is really important to think about, too, is that we see Korea, North and South Korea, in the news all the time. And yet, and I'm only speaking for myself, I knew so little of that history and so little of how our government helped to set up this situation that we're in today, but over many, 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 many decades now. And it's important for us to know what happened there because it it does cast a different light on what we see in the news. Um, I was talking to a journalist who covers Korea recently, and, you know, this was, this was all around one of the Trump visits and, you know, whatever was, you know, the nuclear deal and things like that. And that when he was interviewing people in South Korea, they were less focused on that than they are still. Most important, reunification. And yet we don't really hear that. You know, we don't really, that's not the issue that comes up for us in our coverage of what's happening with North and South Korea, and then, of course, North Korea and the United States. Lisa C., Island of Sea Women is now out. Have you begun working, thinking about the next book? I am. It's something I've been thinking about now for 26 years. I've begun doing the research. It's been really intense and wonderful. And as soon as the tour is over, I I actually have two research trips planned. But then I'm going to just hole up and start writing. Do we have a location that you can give? It's actually the United States. When my grandmother died 26 years ago, I found high up in this 
shed up in the rafters a diary that was written by her mother, who was born on a homestead in South Dakota, came west to Washington State with her family to homestead again. She got pregnant when she was 16, got married, and then she and her husband were very poor itinerant workers who worked from Alaska down to the Mexican border. So I'm really looking at this kind of final push west and what happened when people hit the Pacific. And, you know, where do you go from there? The other thing that happens at the time is sort of the end of a kind of old-fashioned life and the impact of industrialization on people. And so I'm just looking at this final part of, or this moment of American history, but through the eyes of a very poor white woman who happens to be my great-grandmother. So we're moving away from the Asian women of the Just for the novels. next book. <laughs> <laughs> Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>